Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siktika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English Department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing Podcast Series. Today, we present a conversation between Yi Lin Wang and Isabella Wang. My name is Benjamin Berman-Gan. I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. In this interview, the speakers discuss the complication of writing across language, cultural exchanges in poetry, as well as navigating through the pandemic and the academy in writing, as well as differing traditions of women in poetry through history and their own works. Yilin is a writer, poet, Chinese-English translator, and editor who lives in the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and the Stelwithish people. Her writing has appeared in Clark's World, Fantasy Magazine, The Malahat Review, Grain, Contemporary Verse 2, Arc Poetry Magazine, The Toronto Star, Words Without Borders, CBC Books, and elsewhere. Her translations have appeared and are forthcoming in Poetry, Guernica, Room, A Symptom, LA Review of Books, China Channel, Somovar, and the anthology The Way Spring Arrives and Other Stories from Tor.com. She is also the Chinese translator of the picture book Amy Wu and the Patchwork Dragon from Simon & Schuster, 2021. Yilin has won the Foster Poetry Prize, been a finalist for an Aurora Award, been nominated for a Riesling Award, and been longlisted for the CBC Poetry Prize. Her work has been supported and funded by the Canada Council for the Arts, the BC Arts Council, Access Copyright Foundation, and the Alta Virtual Travel Fellowship. They have an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of British Columbia and are a graduate of the Clarion West Writers' Workshop. She is a co-editor-in-chief of the Slice of Life fantasy magazine, Tales and Feathers. Isabella Wang is the author of the chapbook on Forgetting a Language from Baseline Press 2019. She has been shortlisted for the Malahat Review's Far Horizons Award for Poetry, Manola Review's Poetry Contest, and was the youngest writer to be shortlisted twice for the New Quarterly's Edna Stabler Personal Essay Contest. Her poetry and prose have appeared in over 30 literary journals and three anthologies, including Watch Your Head, Writers and Artists Respond to the Climate Crisis, Coach House Books, 2020, and They Rise Like a Wave, an anthology of Asian American women poets, Blue Oak Press, 2021. She studies English and world literature at Simon Fraser University and is an editor at Room Magazine. Pebble Swing is her debut full-length poetry collection. She lives in Port Moody, British Columbia. We hope you enjoy this episode.
Hi, Isabella. Hello, Elin. I'm so glad to be talking to you today for、um, Taya House. Thank you so much for being here with me, and thank you so much to Taya House and to Larissa Lai and everyone for inviting us. Yeah, thank you. I mean, this is such. I was so surprised and happy when you reached out to me, and I'm so grateful to Mark, Chen House, and Larissa Lai for suggesting this. And it's been like so long since we've gotten the chance to speak together or even see each other. So this is really lovely. Yeah, same. I really miss our conversations, and I'm really excited、mm-hmm. to talk to you today.、Um, I've been actually reading.、Um, I recently just finished reading Pebble Swing. So、um, I'm really excited to talk to you about that.、Um, I know the book came out like last, I think, last winter, right? Like November, yeah, December. Yeah, last fall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I remember attending your launch like online and kind of hearing you read from it, and it was such a beautiful event. And、um, I've been kind of wondering, just kind of how has it been since the book has come out? It's been like out in the world for like half a year. Like, how are you feeling about it? Yeah, it's been um, it's been so everyone's been so kind. Um, it's just been a overall really lovely and um wonderful experience. Um, I think I had the pleasure to work with just an absolutely amazing group of editors. Um, and basically like the whole night with team, you know, from the publishing side of things to. More like the media coordination. They've all been really lovely. So、um, special thanks to Emma and Silas who put a lot into it. I guess when I was when I first it first came out, you know, it's my first book, and I had never really had an experience like this, and I was really nervous, and I didn't have much expectations. Um, I just didn't know what to expect. Um, but I think some of my favorite. Experiences have been, I think, the fact that now I'm getting a lot of responses and feedback about how the book has indeed resonated with the slight a slightly younger age group, anywhere from high school students to to like undergraduate university students. Through the BCUCOM book prizes, I was able to go visit um high schools. I was able to visit my own high school where I graduated. And speak to the high school kids there, and I was also able to visit some undergraduate classes, and I think this was the part where, when it first out came out, you know, I had kind of hoped for it, you know, as a young writer who wrote in high school, started writing in high school, and kind of ventured on, you know, this was the audience, this was, you know, this was the people that I had hoped to speak to through my work. And so, when I realized that you know it was happening, that meant a lot to me. Yeah, that's really amazing to to hear that and kind of seeing the journey that you've kind of come. I know we met first, I think,、mm-hmm. at a at a reading、uh, with Room, and、yeah. and you know kind of throughout the years and seeing how kind of、um, you become more and more involved in the community.、Um, With room with high school students with teaching with you know、um, doing so many readings in the community and like festivals and everything just yeah、mm-hmm. and、um, I think it resonates the book with you know many kind of younger emerging writers but 
like I was reading it and and I know I've talked to folks who are older and they also really connect to this book as well. So mm-hmm. um, I think you. it's a book that many people kind of really connect with. Yeah, and it's such a beautiful poetry collection. Thank you. I mean, it's been a while since like, you know, the pandemic just kind of created this like almost like virtual to virtual distance between so many virtual and physical distance between so many people that previously, you know, readings and the internet kind of helped to shorten. Um, But, you know, since, you know, the pandemic, you've graduated from your MFA, right? And you're doing a lot of like community work as well, translations, um, editing. I'd love to like catch up on all of that and just hear about the especially the translation side of what you're doing because you have so much more experience than me on that end and yet it's something that I think we both really love. Yeah, I um started doing some translations when I was in the MFA like a couple mm-hmm. of years ago and Keith Millard's workshop. Um yeah. he held a wonderful workshop kind of at UBC um encouraging folks to try different things to work across genre boundaries mm-hmm. and and kind of um so it was an open workshop where you could submit anything and I was encouraged mm-hmm. to try my hand at translation and I really loved it and especially translating poetry and um and it's something that I've been doing since and mm-hmm. and over the past uh, two years especially I've become more involved in yeah. that side of things. And it is definitely like a way for me to, you know, really reconnect and think with Chinese poetry and with language and literature in a way that I normally don't get to do you know, in my everyday life because it's not a language that necessarily kind of actively work with on like a daily basis. Uh, but still, you know, kind of really inspires me in terms of its poetry and being able to collaborate in a way, you know, on the page mm-hmm. with different poets and kind of to yeah. read widely and to kind of, it really kind of means a lot to me and kind of being um, involved in that and being able to kind of connect to other poets and other translators. Um, I'm actually just going to finish edits on a poetry chapter that's coming cool. out in the fall. So, yeah, a translation. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I've been kind of working on translating a bunch of modern and contemporary poets. Well, yeah, yeah. And I know like you're also interested in translation and also in writing about mm-hmm. language because both yeah. of your collections kind of delve into that in some ways, you know, talking about you know, language loss and forgetting language. So do you yeah. want to speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm, I mean, this is another like uh, really wonderful convergence that we kind of share, you know, just our different experiences with language in very different ways we can mutually kind of regain or expand and enrich in our relationships to our mother tongue you know my own experience is that I immigrated to Canada at the age of seven not knowing a single word of English but very quickly over that time my my grasp of language kind of reversed itself so that English quickly became my dominant language and mandarin was the language that i no longer spoke when i was dreaming when i was thinking but it was like this language that you know i kind of had to fall back on to 
get to retrieve whenever I need it. But, you know, that is, you know, often the experience with immigrant children when I guess, you know, the loss of language isn't intentional so much as it is a symptom of, say, you know, that feeling of alterity, feeling out of place in a new country, and then the intense bullying that, you know, me and so many other students experienced from those experiences, you know, that quickly gathers up and becomes a source of trauma. And you, you, when you associate that with, you know, your mother tongue, it's, you know, it was the reason that I started to, you know, almost distance myself from that, distance myself from roots. Which is why my book is primarily in English. It's the language I feel most fluent with, most comfortable expressing myself in through poetry. And in that book, I acknowledge language loss. Um, I acknowledge the loss of culture, loss of roots, and um, fragmentation of family resulting from this move and my subsequent loss of language. And at the same time, you see Mandarin as this, as this flicker that comes and goes in my, in my book. Often when the language appears, when Mandarin appears in the book, I don't translate it. I do not offer a footnote on purpose. For one, because when it comes, it's natural. It's from a part of my former self that I haven't lost yet. And it's also, you know, I have it there without trans without the English translation for sake of that feeling of wanting to be in solidarity with other Mandarin-speaking immigrants, as well as other immigrants who know that feeling of, say, coming to a new country and being immersed and adopting this dominant language. But then there's that side of yourself that you still, you know, you still haven't, you still have roots too, because, you know, we recognize that. Um, we recognize another Mandarin-speaking individual who even though they speak predominantly in English might still recognize those words I haven't translated and I think that is something I want to get across um but you know I think you too you were an immigrant right and I know that you have a slightly different experience with it and for one thing your grasp of Chinese and Mandarin and the written script has always been really strong. But at least from what I've observed over the years, have you felt that you've kind of enriched that relationship and grasp of language through your work of translations? I know you've kind of researched this other script that is practiced predominantly by women in China and also Chinese poetry. Yeah, yeah. Um, before I answer your question, I just want to say, like, um, when I was reading your poem, I definitely really appreciated the occasional, you know, sprinkling of, of Chinese words and characters. And I remember, I think it was in your response poem to, to Natalie's poem um, that, that talked about, you know, the experience of kind of um, bullying yeah. and the challenges of of, you know, kind of being an immigrant and then having a difficult kind of relationship with language. So, yeah. so I definitely really resonated with that. 
And recently, I was reading Amy Tan's essay, Mother Tongue. I don't know. If oh my gosh, read it or, or read I read it too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you know, right? Like mm -hmm. the the ideas it talks about, you know, and kind of the idea of like the complicated relationships with mothers and mother tongue, and with the the pressure to you know kind of speak you know kind of perfect standard English um, mm -hmm. for immigrants, and and what that means in terms of kind of how folks are treated um, if they do not, you know, fit yeah. into that and, and the exactly. ways that maybe our generation, you know, gets really controlled and kind of pressured into that kind of um, box and those constraints. Yeah. Yeah. And just the, ex the secondary, like the next level of alterity you feel when say you do speak um, whatever this, I guess in this, you do speak perfect English however the term perfect English is imperfect right and then yeah, again being you know again that feeling of a charity you experience when almost people don't expect you to speak perfect English and then again you you know it's like you're reminded of again so much so my interest in you know um Lusu, like women mm -hmm. women's language and uh, which is this kind of um, rare script and yeah. um, kind of endangered language from like a particular region of China that was used by women who couldn't, you know, access traditional education back in the days when mm -hmm. only men, you know, were primarily kind of allowed to attend schools and become literate. Yeah. And, and also kind of in translation in general is kind of in this context, for sure. As an immigrant, I also have a very complicated relationship with language. Yeah. I was born in China and I learned to speak Chinese, you know, but then I moved to the U.S. when I was quite yeah. young, when I yeah. was around around four or five. And after two years there, you know, I did not speak any Chinese. I could not write in Chinese. I just yeah. kind of completely lost my language. And, and eventually I returned to China and um, lived with my grandparents, who really actually helped me kind of regain and taught me mm -hmm. how to read and write and speak Chinese fluently again. And so I'm kind of really owe a lot of my language skills to them. And, and I went through kind of, you know, many years of around five or six years of schooling, you know, in mm -hmm. China um, before I immigrated to Canada. And so that um, then led me to relearn English again. So I feel like I'm in this stage where um, I'm always learning a different language in some ways and, and always kind of struggling with kind of forgetting and holding mm -hmm. on to languages. And um, be in that space where you constantly feel like your relationship with language is a bit kind of unstable and broad. And so kind of translation for me has been a way to kind of access some of that again um, and kind of to work with the language that, um, you know, I speak and I read and I'm really interested in, but I don't necessarily kind of get to write in um, creatively. Since we both you know, work in mm -hmm. English. And that's kind of like um, very exciting to me in terms of the possibilities it offers. And also just thinking as well about other kind of literary traditions, you know, non-English ones, non-Western ones, um, and mm -hmm. what we can learn from that and kind of borrow from that. So I know you're very interested, for example, in the gazelle, you know, yeah. as, as a form. And I know I'm, you also have some interest in, you know, learning languages and in translation. So do you want to yeah. speak a bit on that? Yeah, I mean... Languages, whether it's a language 
you speak very fluently, whether it's a language you inherited from being born into it or a language you kind of immerse yourself into and begin learning later on in life. I mean, so much of it is like any other thing that you have to grasp via practice. I mean, I think the reason that, you know, you talk about this idea of hanging on and always juggling between that versus, say, forgetting. And so much of it relies on practice, right? As soon as you kind of, you know, kind of just start to think and speak in English, and then you kind of, you, you know, in my experience, say, stop going to Mandarin classes, that slips away from you so quickly. And again, with like Farsi, um, it was such a lovely experience. I loved um, learning to write and read in the Farsi script, which is beautiful. But again, it's something that requires practice, much like my other experiences with like music and ballet. But um, I wanted to share this really interesting piece that um, that reminded me of what you were saying with a script written by Chinese women um, when they couldn't access an education. And this story is similar but also different in that the Hazal is this traditional form of poetry that originated in 10th century Iran. It is it was written in Persian, in Urdu, and and the word Hazal, that form of poetry, which is very musical, has two translations. Um, it can be translated directly into the English gazelle which gives the hazo its light and fleeting qualities on um, these really unique lines and images that kind of flicker and go in the poem. And at the same time, the other translation of it means speaking to women, because one of the most universal themes of the hazal is love, whether it's love of woman, which is very popular, love of, you know, wine and that culture. Um, as well as love of God and um, spirituality and nature. But love is at the center of it. During that time, it was the men who predominantly wrote in the Hazal and whose work God preserved. And it was the men who attended these readings where they would share their work. At least in my very limited knowledge of it, women did write, but many of them were courtesans and royals. They didn't get included in the mainstream as much. One of the really interesting things is that while the um, hazal is, um, is a form that is used to almost write a, about men's desire for women, objectifying women, or expressing a love towards someone identified as women, there is this more subversive form of the Haza, which is called the Rekti, where you see women's lenses, and I'm, I'm saying lenses in quotations, women's lenses come across. It's about woman's life, woman's language, like as opposed to more universal themes, more the everyday lives of women doing common chores, um, child rearing, or woman loving woman. And even but even so, it's written almost predominantly by men. And women who write this form are, again, 
very, very marginalized. But it's interesting because while the rect the Khazal is much more widely preserved in their whole, and the Khazal is about a ma man writing about love or woman, this more subversive form of the recti that kind of focuses on the perspectives of women, you know, it's a lot more limited. It's more um it's less commonly used and and the poems are basically all just preserved in fragments and so it's kind of like similar but very different since it's not women writing about their lives it's men writing and focusing on women but even so this um at the time this this form was very much marginalized in itself and it's one of the reasons it's I'm forgetting the word, but yeah, it's kind of like um, not extinct, but like the synonym. Endangered? Um, well, um, yeah, it's more rare, I guess. Okay. But I wanted to share that um, just based on what you were doing. Yeah, that, that sounds really interesting, actually, mm -hmm. because um, I think just thinking about, you know, the idea of perspective that you bring mm -hmm. up. And the idea of going against, you know, conventional forms mm -hmm. and and kind of who we focus on in poetry yeah. and whose perspectives and kind of why and who has access, you know, to to writing and education and also particular forms, mm -hmm. particular languages. Um, I yeah. think that's really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, for women's script, um, it was like um it's both a written system as well as a spoken system. And the spoken system is kind of still just using the same language that everyone mm -hmm. spoke in the region, like the local language and dialect. Um, but yeah. the, the characters themselves are very different from like conventional Chinese characters, like Hanzi. And, and so you had to be taught how to read it. And it was something mm -hmm. that was kind of passed down to women, which, which I find very interesting. So you would have this kind of matrilineal kind of teaching practice of, of older women and aunties and sisters teaching yeah. younger women. And and that's something that's kind of, you know, builds community. And then you get things like kind of folk tales and stories and poetry mm -hmm. written in the script. Um, but it can only be read, you know, by women because no one else can read it. So you get this so kind cool. of alternate women's kind of voice in history. That's mm -hmm. that's recorded um, in this way because um, they were forced to reinvent and can invent their own language, you know, in order to have like a writing um, script system. And one interesting thing as well is that um, there's a practice for the women when they pass away for all their writing to be burned and to be kind of um, just kind of show in the fire and kind of burned into ashes. Their um, writing. Yeah, after a particular woman, uh, the idea is to pr preserve kind of their privacy and preserve oh, her, cool. like, and, and kind of for her writing to kind of go with her in a way uh, when, when she departs kind of our world rather is than there, to like, kind of be left behind. Um, yeah, th there are a few texts. I think there is um, one book in English about um, cool. Nusu. So, yeah, it's something that you can read about if. If you're kind of interested oh, in the history, yeah, please and, send it to me. And, That's, yeah, so I can share it with you. Yeah, and I know some some of the poetry has been translated as well from mm -hmm. 
from the script, but I'm in the process of looking into possibly translating some of them myself in the future, just because um, I'm very, very fascinated by this history. But yeah, so so you get this kind of um, this language that's kind of very rare and you know kind of taught by a very mm-hmm. small group, kind of passed down. And because you know education now has become much more widespread, everyone having access to schools and mm-hmm. and kind of being taught Mandarin and had to read and write and so on, um, it's become this language that feels like a bit of like a kind of almost like this memory, you know, from the past that are with us, that's kind of this kind of cultural heritage, but at the same time has lost some of its kind of practical applications mm-hmm. in, in relationship to our kind of current day society, which yeah. which led it to them kind of being kind of more and more obsolete. kind of forgotten. There we go, obsolete and, is the yes. word I was <laughs> Yes, yeah. yes, exactly, exactly, yeah. obsolete. So, because, you know, who who else would be kind of learning it other than as like a, for a creative purpose or, you know, if they're mm-hmm. curious and interested in the language or if um, they have, you know, a personal connection. So, so that's mm-hmm. kind of the struggle, you know, with the preservation of, mm-hmm. of something like this. And, and in addition to, you know, the practice of kind of burning writing and kind of pages when someone is passed away, it means we don't really have, you know, like this long lasting yeah. history of, of writing yeah. being recorded unless it's, you know, kind of transcribed or kind of preserved in another form. Well, I think the act of burning, that is so unique and so interesting. And there is something really powerful about that. Because I think, you know, so much about archive is about preservation. It's about, you know, looking into the archive's curiosity. But then there's this agency assigned to these women saying, you don't have to show anyone your writing if you don't want to. Um, And that's, I think that's something that's really important to remember, too. The other thing I was really curious about is, you know, having learned this really unique and rare language, this script, um, have you noticed any patterns as to how the characters and their meanings are formed? Because you know how in traditional Mandarin or Cantonese, the characters, they all originate from pictograms. Like wheat looks like, you know, wheat fields. Like tree looks like a tree. Are is there any of that um associated with this script? It's very interesting because it's not like an ideogram kind of based mm-hmm. um script. And and I'm still kinda of learning it. Um and it's kind of a journey to learn it because yeah. it is quite complex. But um uh, it's actually a sound based system. Yeah. So um you have kind of still kind of spoken Chinese, except, you know, in the regional dialect, or mm-hmm. there's kind of a version of it that's adjusted for Mandarin speakers, in which case you would use the, ma- the sounds from Mandarin. Um, and what you would do is you would have particular characters uh, representing particular sounds. So it's, it's very much kind of based on like syllables and sounds rather cool. than character. Um, and and the, the notable feature of the, the script is that the the script is quite curvy, so you don't get straight lines, which, which you know, is really different mm-hmm. from hands. Yeah, it is. It, it's all, like, kind of curves and kind of dots and things mm-hmm. like that. And there are different kind of myths about how the language originated, and, and one of them was related to embroidery, 
So it has to do with kind of um, the way that people embroider, you know, kind of they don't necessarily write in straight lines. And, and so that could be one of, one of the reasons that this kind of um, exists. And then there are some kind of other um, different myths about like other ways it could have originated. But, but that's kind of one, like a very common one. So it looks like this kind of very long, slender, kind of curvy kind of script. That is amazing. Oh. Oh, I'd love to hear more about that embroider, <laughs> embroider aspect of it, but maybe <laughs> another day. Yeah, yeah, it is very interesting. So, um, let's maybe talk about like what are you what are you working on now, and what have you been up to since? Okay, yeah, I've been working on feeding my cats, keeping my cats off the counter, <laughs> playing with my cats. Um, but in all seriousness, um, the big thing right now is applying for grad school, um, which I'm so nervous about. Yeah, just doing a lot of the preparation this summer for it since the deadline to apply is December. So, you know, you've been through that. Um, I think like you got to do the shirk applications, you've got to do the CV, you've got to do the research and the proposal. Since I was ill recently. It's something that is a lot harder than I expected. Um, just given this time that I'm going through, um, where everything just takes a little bit longer for me. So I am, I am really excited about my project and the prospect of starting, not this upcoming fall, but the next fall. I'm just a bit nervous about that. I'm also doing a couple of events, a couple of festivals and local readings here in Vancouver and in Victoria, which I'm really looking forward to. And then just, I think, um, besides working and working on, on poetry in Canada, I am also doing my own writing, working on two current and two separate poetry manuscripts in progress. And I'm actually making the seeds of a novel which will take like a long time. I haven't even gotten started, but there's a little bit of an inkling there. You've been really, really busy with, with <laughs> a lot going on. And and yeah, definitely like applying to grad school and master's in the shirk kind of is definitely like a quite an intensive kind of yeah. process of, you know, academic research and all of that. So yeah, yeah. I um, went through that years ago. I know for me, because I had come and did an MFA, um, it yeah. was really interesting because you had to kind of situate your creative writing work within mm -hmm. the, the context of academic research and, yeah. and thinking about, you know, how kind of can academic, the academic side of things, you know, literary studies um, intersect with your creative practice. I feel like I should just go get a brain scan while having a panic attack and then like wrap that in a neat little bowl and send it off to the like graduate community and be like this is my brain it's having a panic attack and this is this is what it's prepared for grad school <laughs> it it's it definitely would capture you know how people feel and it is a very accurate <laughs> representation of of the yeah of yeah. kind of just being in academia you know and but but don't stress it. You know you have time, and I'm sure you'll be wonderful. And and yeah, it will be great. And I'm sure the schools will be left key to have you. So yeah. yeah. Well, if I get in, I mean, my 
so much of what we've talked about is kind of like the proposal um, I've got in mind for grad school. So maybe you'll be a part of it and I could interview <laughs> you. Ah. Uh, yes, that would be amazing. I'm actually, so this is kind of, I, I think it's okay to say here, but I'm still kind of debating. I'm considering going back to do more schooling. So mm-hmm. um, I'm also actually looking at um, future kind of, um, cool. yeah, like an MA and or a PhD. So mm-hmm. um, something that I've been thinking about since I've ever finished MFA, um, but I'm, I'm thinking of going and doing possibly an MA in literature. Um, before I do something um, further down the road in like comparative literature or something like that. So yeah, so I'm also currently looking at grad school programs as well. You know Um, how I feel. But I mean, at the same time, like you've got so much expertise and I think you'll be great. I think, yeah. You too. And I know you've been very active already like in doing stuff, I think with, you know, academic conferences like that. And your time at SFU, you know, taking classes in literature and everything. Mm, yeah. Fingers crossed. Buck. Thank you. And um, what have you been reading recently? Ah, um, I've been rereading a lot of Madeline Tian. Um, especially, I just finished her book, Dogs, and the per- Dogs at the Perimeter, and I am in the process of listening to the audiobook do not say we have nothing it's because of that beautiful storyline that touches me so much and the counterpoint melodies that kind of flow through the book as a narrative i think i read i i tried to read do not say we have nothing when i was just beginning high school and at the time it was too hard for me so i'm reading it again now and that's why partly the other thing I've been doing, um, shout out to Linda Mora, is listening to her really great podcast, Getting Lit with Linda, where she kind of introduces um, a book that she's been reading and just has the most brilliant and generous and funny insights about the book and why you should go read it. And so I've actually been following along that, and I've been reading a lot of books that she has recommended on her podcast. So Madeline Tian is one of them. I need to get into Rowie Hage's book. I'm reading a lot of poetry, as usual. Renee Gladman's series about this city that's kind of been distorted through language and translation and kind of in ruins, kind of as an allegory for this condition of the United States. And it's they're short books, but they're just so mind-blowing and taking me forever. Those are some books. What about you? Um, books yeah. So um, I was just going to say, I actually also um, read some of Madeline Tian's books mm-hmm. a while back. Um, Simple Recipes, especially. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, her short fiction. Um, recently, I've been reading, um, I read um, Ocean Vaughn's poetry collections, uh, both of those. Mm-hmm. And um, and I actually was listening to one of his um, talks um, mm-hmm. a while back that he did at like one of the launches where he talked about kind of his experience 
as an MFA student and also teaching poetry. And um, I really appreciate kind of his um, thoughts on the metaphor and how mm -hmm. he uses the metaphor. And uh, he also thinks a lot about kind of um, Buddhism and Buddhist ideas around um, how a poetry kind of functions mm -hmm. um, in terms of like, in terms of structure and in terms of the space and yeah. and the metaphor and I find that really kind of interesting um, mm -hmm. because I'm very interested in you know kind of yeah. East Asian poetry as a, a tradition. Then I've also been reading some literary theory as well. Um, I was reading um, Craft in the Real World which is on oh. my bookshelf right now. Um, I don't know if you've heard of or read that book by Matthew Salas's. It's um, it, it would be, I think, very much um, a book that you would be interested in if you're interested in writing fiction and prose. Mm -hmm. He really kind of interrogates the idea of the creative writing workshop and the ideas of craft as taught in academia and in creative writing spaces mm -hmm. and breaks that down and talks about how craft is actually like a set of cultural expectation. Yeah. And it's something that's very dependent on context culture yes. and you know who are you writing for and where are you writing from yeah. so so I found that to be really interesting and he redefines a lot of um, the the elements of fiction writing things like yeah. structure a conflict character agency mm -hmm. you know plot etc so um, yeah so I've been reading through that and and I've been doing um, one like a year-long mentorship with Larissa Lai she um, this this grant from the BC Arts Council. Thank you so much, BC Arts Council. Tell her I say uh, hi. Yeah, so I will. And um, and so we've been meeting, you know, kind of um, like twice a month or so, mm -hmm. and we've been discussing this book as well. So it's been really really helpful um, to have someone to talk to, you know, different things I'm reading. And I was also reading Chinese theories of fiction, which I think Mark has also been reading as well. So we well, we need to also talk about that and um and that's something that I've been meaning also to talk to Larissa about. Mm -hmm. And um uh, it approaches kind of the idea as a fiction, um and kind of what it what is a story and how a kind of story can be conceptualized. Mm -hmm. Um through, you know, kind of looking at Chinese fiction um mm -hmm. on its own kind of away from the Western gaze and away from kind of outside of the space of kind of Western literary theory, but like on its own terms. And yeah. and using kind of um the dream of red the red chamber, the novel, as as a model. And I find that kind of very interesting as a way to think about about fiction. And and so I've also been reading the novel as well, um, kind of in relation to, to that book. Wow, that's amazing. How, yeah, it's sometimes I just want to like, like go on like a week long retreat with you and talk all about like <laughs> a reading and what I'm reading. Oh, so much. Yeah, so nice. yeah, that would be so nice. I feel sometimes I need like a vacation from, from daily life, and nice. and being in Vancouver and and also you know from the living through the pandemic because yeah, that's, you know, that's been hard. definitely something that affecting affecting all of us mm. yeah how have you been kind of finding it that being do you find it difficult to kind of be creative and and have energy and kind of, you know kind of yeah. have navigate everything given the, what's going on in the world today 
Yeah, both. I mean, the first part of the pandemic, I was doing school and going through like several housing crises. And when that was in the midst, it was very difficult. I still did it, but I it was very difficult to write as much to like um feel inspired especially because like when you're when it's hard for you to exist in a certain environment you know writing you know it's something that i feel like i should be doing as a form of sustenance but it's just hard and then and then the second half of it i was going through another housing crisis and cancer and getting sick and the surgery took a lot of energy and so my energy hasn't been the same since and now it's just i feel like it's even lower than the first two years um you know it's like just one email takes so much longer for me to respond everything feels like it's been stretched out um yeah it just takes a lot longer to do a lot of things and so that's what i'm feeling right now but now there is a bit of stability in terms of um the living situation. I don't always have energy to go on campus, but when I do, it's really good. It's really good for the soul just to see everyone. That's where I'm at. Yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely really challenging, you know, given everything that you have on with housing and also dealing with health issues in the pandemic. It's the the way that, you know, our country has been handling the public health crisis. So much to say on that. So much yeah, to say. Yeah, so much to say on that, you know, another conversation. But just kind of being able to, you know, kind of take care of yourself is very important. And I hope you get kind of the space to, you know, rest and recover and and heal and just kind of take on too much and kind of make sure you that too. you're kind of, yeah. Thank you. I've been, I've also been dealing with housing issues as well. And, yeah, and you know, I moved last year during the pandemic, and then I'm going to move again soon. And, and I actually, you know, recently wrote a poem that was called Moving Again, yeah. you know, kind of that, I, that I was coming out, you know, kind of this, this year, but actually, you know, like before I have even received, you know, the physical copy of, of the magazine, I'm again moving and having to rearrange, you know, for my poem about moving to be moved to me literally because I'm getting you know displaced. So that is definitely a challenge. Um I've also just I think been struggling um with everything going on because seeing the situation both here and also both in you know around the world and in China and then kind of hearing about um the ways that that kind of also been effective. And, and, you know, wanting sometimes to write about it, but then thinking about, you know, kind of challenges of, of writing about the current pandemic you know, and, yeah. and one's own work and not sure kind of how much or to what extent, you know, I want to um, go into that space. Yeah. Of kind of, even though it's, you know, our everyday reality at this point has been for a while. Yeah. But there's something about this at this time in particular that just makes it so much so difficult to write about you know even to process I haven't been able to yeah yeah, yeah. I think many folks are kind of really related kind of really um feel the same way 
like mm. I read kind of pieces of um, you know on Twitter people talking mm. about like trying to be creative you know trying to write even trying to read and focus you know and not being able to just because of the yeah. environment and exactly. sometimes we just need to you know kind of take a step back from that yeah and maybe you know when the time is right and mm-hmm. we're able to process more you know yeah, yeah. We hope you enjoyed this conversation between Yilin Wang and Isabella Wang. I'm Ben Berman-Gan, and you're listening to the Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stukel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Micah Jacobson, Rebecca Jilin, Ryan Stern, Shu Yin Yu, Mark Lynch, Shazia Hafif, Ramji, Benjamin Gan, Amy LeBlanc, and Mahomed Ababni.